I'm sure most of you must have heard of Zardozi embroidery. Today this craft has become a mainstay in couture and bridal costumery and can be afforded by many. But there was a time when only the kings and the royals could adorn garments embroidered in Zardozi as it was made using fine gold, silver and precious stones. This magnificent art of metallic embellishment on fabrics added glitter, glamour, opulence and power to their wardrobe. Though this craft was prevalent in India even in the ancient times, but Zardoz, as a class of artisans, along with other artisans, came to India only in the 12th century along with the Sultanate conquerors. By the Mughal period, this craft reached its zenith. There were many times when this craft lost its patronage and that led to its decline, but it always found patronage somewhere else and again became popular. Today in this podcast we will be talking about the historical development of Zardozi in India and how the material transformed to become affordable for the common man. To talk more on this subject I have Dr Charu Smita Gupta with me who is an anthropologist and museologist with a diverse professional experience in the field of cultural traditions of India. She has also written several books including one on our today's topic called Zardozi. Welcome to the Indian podcast Charu ji how are you? I'm fine thank you how are you I'm good too Now Charuji when we talk about zardozi it's a persian word where zar means gold and dozi means embroidery In your book zardozi you have mentioned that the oldest documentary evidence to what might have been the earliest artifacts embroidered in precious metals is to be found in the vedic age So could you tell us more in detail about the historical development of this craft till the mughal period Yes uh, Alicia in the indian context we come across the word hiranyan atkan in vedic literature here hiranyan means gold and atak means embroidered cloth this clearly means that uh, some kind of gold embroidery was being done during the vedic period in mahabharata They said when uh, Pandavas went for the swamvar, they were adorned in gold embroidered fabric. Similarly, Valmiki Ramayana mentions swarn tantu nirmit. This is a Sanskrit word which means made from gold wire. And there are descriptions that dresses of Ram, Sita, and even Ravana were embroidered with gold wire and studded with precious stones there's another word maharajat vasas which also means cloth embroidered with gold jain literature mentions a word kanak khichiya meaning the gold embroidered fabric there are references in the sculptures of kushan period and jataka stories of gupta period talk about heavily embroidered turban in gold and if we see the ajanta paintings there are several items like belts costumes and few cushions which are interpreted to be gold embroidered the popular works of banbhat that is again in late gupta period harsh charitra and kadambari mention silk clothing in different colors embroidered with jewels 
when we see through all this literature up till 13th century there are innumerable references and zardozi during the sultanate period is the word which came from persia for the work of gold embroidery which was done earlier under several other names as i have mentioned before there have been a traveler from sultanate period ibn batuta who writes in his travels of rehla of ibn batuta written in 14th century he was gifted robe of honor and this robe of honor was embroidered with gold and silver wire and studded with precious stones there are also descriptions of banners and standards given to the army also embroidered in gold marco polo another traveler to the city of cambay had seen personally gold embroideries on cushions in leather but it was during only during the sultanate period that tughlaq he had imposed certain ban on zardozi he said that the embroidery should be according to the sharia and uh, there were many impositions during the times of muhammad tughlaq and uh, in this particular period there was a downfall in the zardozi embroidery but again after this downfall when the moguls came to india zardozi was revived a new revival of the craft was seen in north when mughal emperor akbar adorned the furnishing and tents in zardozi embellishment apart from the costume shoes crowns and many many other accessories the glory of zardozi craft in mughal period is described in aine akbari and in travelers accounts of the traveler tavernier akbar as you know had his court in agra so we have many descriptions of zardozi embroidery in agra but shah jahan the mughal king shifted the court from agra to delhi so as the seat of the craft shifted from agra to delhi so did the craft meaning that many of the zardozi workers moved to shah jahanabad that is today's old delhi and i may just briefly mention here that during the mughal period several of the provincial courts also were practicing the zardozi craft like when we see the courts in rajasthan jaipur bikaner barmer everywhere zardozi was practiced and it was also practiced in hyderabad then in lucknow it emerged from uh, avadh nobility of avadh wajid ali shah he promoted uh, apart from other crafts the zardozi craft also and another very very interesting aspect of zardozi is that also the zardozi embroidery was used to embellish the dresses and adornments of the gods and goddesses now we indians as you know are the idol worshippers we glorify our gods 
and we dress up our gods in the same manner as our nobilities are dressed up. So most of these costumes for the gods and goddesses were in earlier times, it is said they were made in Varanasi. And uh, now, of course, these are being made in Mathura, Vrindavan also. But the trade in Zardozi costumes meant for the gods and goddesses was mainly done in Varanasi, even during the Mughal period. Charuji, there is also this popular myth that you've mentioned in your book about, uh, you know, the origin of the craft, which the Zardos of Delhi uh, have mentioned to you. Could you tell us about that? There is a popular myth, which almost every second Zardos of Delhi narrated to me when I was doing a field work in the lanes of Shah Zahanabad, that is the old Delhi. The myth goes as once a mosquito entered the king's head and fluttering of this mosquito was causing the king very severe headache. Every kind of treatment had failed and king just didn't know what to do. Finally, Pagambar himself advised the head Hakim in his dream that the king would be cured of his headache if he is hit by a shoe in the area of pain. The Hakim narrated his dream to his associates, but they didn't know how to execute the plan. So finally, they managed to come to a conclusion and it was decided that a shoe decorated with pure gold and silver threads was ordered to be made for the purpose. The king was hit with the shoe. This killed the mosquito, curing the king of his ailment. And king then, when he got better, he asked that, how was he cured? Then hesitantly, the Hakim showed him the shoe that Jahapana, uh, we made the shoe of gold and silver wire. And since I had dreamt about Pagamba telling me to hit you with the shoe, we got it made. Emperor was very, very impressed by the workmanship, and so were the nobles. Incidentally, it is said that this shoe was made on leather. So, according to the myth, the Zardozi embroidery was done concurrently on leather as well as on fabric. Charuji, do we know which king are we talking about here? There is no reference. Everybody is, says Bacha. Bacha and Pagamba. All right. Charuji, we've already spoken about how during the Sultanate and the Mughal period, due to the patronage extended by the rulers, this craft established firm roots in India. It became institutionalized, as we know, with the establishment of workshops or karkhanas. Could you tell us more about these court karkhanas that you've also mentioned in your book? Alicia court karkhana means the production unit managed and controlled by the court. Now, as I've told you before, there were uh, Mughal courts and there were provincial courts. And in court karkhanas in Rajasthan, they were also known as uh, Toshkhanas. Now, there is a difference in court karkhana and Toshkhana. Toshkhana is the storage house. But Karkhana is the production unit. 
The goods manufactured in court karkhanas were under the direct design guidance of the noble ladies and produce of the court karkhanas could not be sold by the zardoz. Actually, many times I say that fashion designing is not a new concept. All the nobilities uh, during the Mughal times, they had their court karkhanas and each lady during the festival of Eid or Navroz, that is the New Year festival, the Zardoz workers, they were not allowed to go out of the court karkhana, lest another uh, karkhana worker, they may share the design and uh, the ladies, then their design would be out before they wear it. So there was a lot of production, I would say secret production. The Zardos thus were just the salaried employees, but they were paid well. And all the goods manufactured in the court karkhana were consumed, gifted, or sold by the nobilities themselves. So this was a very large uh, production setup, and uh, there was a lot of work for Zardos. Uh, when I used to talk to the Zardoz artisans, they would always say that our grandparents uh, had a lot of work. Like I had met many of the Zardoz craftsmen whose grandfather and great-grandfather were working in Patiala court or Delhi court. And they said, we had plenty to eat. Our women never had to work. All right. Now, we see that the downfall of the Mughal Empire resulted in complete dislocation of the craft tradition. And you've also mentioned that, you know, uh, it forced the Zardoz to shift their activities from Delhi and Agra to several provincial courts or, you know, some uh, were working for the British or they were, you know, they did something else altogether. Uh, and during this period, of course, you know, new centers like Hyderabad, Jaipur, Patiala, Rampur, Bhopal and Banaras, they emerged as more active centers of this craft. And of course, as we know, the next stage of development was the result of the patronage which was offered by the Portuguese and the other European traders. Uh, so could you tell us more about what was happening during this period? Well, there is a uh, important historical fact dating back to 16th century. The Vijayanagar Empire, under the rule of Krishnadev Rai, had many Zardozi craftsmen. And uh, this has been mentioned by a Portuguese uh, traveler, Cristiana de Figueiredo, who saw the king wearing expensive dresses made with gold and jewels. Now, there are other references also establishing that during the 16th century, gold embroidery was very much part of the court culture in Deccan. And Portuguese were attracted to this prestigious craft. Now, it is said that Portuguese travelers, they took this craft to mainly Europe. Now, there are certain Zardozi dresses very popular among Africans, and they were, they were also embroidered in South. But the Portuguese, they liked very heavy work, very, I would say, gaudy, not gorgeous. Uh, the big, big motifs uh, they liked. And 
before I come to that, let me just uh, explain to you that in the Zardozi work, there has been a diversification. There is Zardozi, then there is Karchobi, and there is Kamdani. Now, all the three works are done on Karchob, and all the three works are done by silver wire plated with gold. And uh, Zardozi is the metal wire slightly thicker. There are several varieties of Zardozi wire. Kora, Gijai, Kicha, and these pieces are cut. And then they are laid onto the fabric. In Karchobi, they tried to give more of a three-dimensional effect by couching. That means they would do uh, embroidery with cotton thread on the fabric, and then they will cover it with the metal thread. And this work of uh, Karchobi, that was done mainly with the Hathari. The needle was different. And Kamdani was very, very fine work, which was mainly done on mukkut or on finer fabric like muslin. So coming back to the Portugals, Portugals, they like the Karchobi work. And uh, I do not know when the Pope started wearing the shash done with Zardozi embroidery or Karchobi embroidery. But Many of my Zardoz friends told me like all the export for the badges and the banners and the dresses for the Pope and the Shah were done in the Indian Karkhanas and mainly in Deccan. The spread of Zardozi craft among the European countries became more popular with the advent of the British rule. During the British period, it was only in Delhi that the two darbars were held. And during these darbars, Delhi darbars in 1903 and another date, I will have to check. Zardoz got lot of appreciation in terms of the work. So with the disintegration of the Mughal court, when Britishers came, many of the Zardoz artisans, they either moved to the provincial courts or they tried to establish karkhanas at another place. Now, it is very important. You know, Zardozi is different from other uh, embroideries. If you know, it is done on karchop, that is a wooden adda and it requires some space and if you take the karchop to home you have to make some space for the production where the production work can be done at least 12 hours in a day and most of the works was done during the daylight so they needed proper illumination maybe proper sunlight so there were two options one was either they take the karchop to home or they find any other premises uh, where they could do the work. When they took the karchop to home, we call it domestic karkhana. That means that also included another social process. Earlier, the women were not sitting on the karchop, but when the karchop came to home, 
there was a distinct division of labor. Women would do the embroidery. They would lay the metal on the fabric and men will, would get the order. See, in the cold Karkhana, they didn't have uh, this problem of who will give them the order. The nobility was giving them the job and they were simply producing. But once the Karkhana shifted out of the court, there was a big question of from where would they get the work. So all the men started hunting for the work. They became the agents, they got the work. Negotiations were done by the men, the costing and everything. And women would embroider and they would get their fair share of the wage. I was told during my field work that women always kept their money. They were free to spend this money the way they wanted to. They never spent it on the kitchen. The responsibility of kitchen expenditure was always with the men. Now coming to the commercial karkhana, now commercial karkhanas were the karkhanas where the karcho was not brought to home, the domestic karcho, but another place was rented or bought where six or seven or ten workers were hired and they would work in the karkhana. Commercial karkhana was on the same lines as the court karkhana, except that the work was not as heavy as in the court karkhana, but mainly these were the business houses. And just as the Mughal nobilities, the British ladies also started calling the craftsmen to their residences. But now the situation was different. It was very rare that craftsmen would be asked to sit there and do the work in their house. No, the craftsmen would take the work. But the designs and the format, the furnishing items and the costumes, detailings, they changed. And there was a lot of spread into the European countries. Like in India, we, don't have, we didn't have the concept of table and the chair. So they were getting the dining table cover or the side table covers. Then, you know, European beds were very, very lavishly decorated, the bed streets. So they were also made in Zardozi. And also the dresses, the scarves. Actually, I happened to visit Victoria and Albert Museum and I was privileged to see their store, which had all the collections. and. There were boots, long boots, which were embroidered in Zardozi. Uh, we have a photograph in our book. And let me mention the last ruler, Bahadusha Zafar, the belt which he was wearing, that is available in Redfort Museum and that has been published in my book. That was also made in Zardozi, the patka. Now, patka was gone with the Mughal rule. Britishers were wearing belts. So instead of patka, the belts were embroidered. Similarly, instead of turbans, the hats were embroidered. And uh, along with that, instead of badges, king would wear the insignia, the royal insignia uh, that was embroidered in Zardozi embroidery. And as I mentioned earlier, during the Darbar held, 
all the elephant trapping, the caprizones, everything was done in Zardozi. The ladies' sandals were embroidered in Zardozi. Charuji, we see that post-independence, again, there was a downfall in this craft and that happened due to two major reasons. One was that the price of gold and silver um, became really high and also, I mean, post-independence, we see even the provincial courts were not there. So, I mean, these Zardos had to find patronage again somewhere else. So, could you please elaborate more uh, on these two reasons for the downfall after the independence? Alicia, there were two reasons for the downfall. One was the disintegration of even the provincial courts. And again, the Zardos, they had to find another patronage. They started personally exploring the patronage outside the country. Earlier it was only till Europe. Now they expanded to USA, Japan and also many Southeast Asian countries. Do you know in Thailand and in Cambodia also they wear the Zardozi items and all those dresses they were made in Surat. There was a direct trade. But each country, like each Zardoz of each region found their own markets. There was no help from the government till a particular time and people who would give them the work they will come to them personally. And earlier there was no internet, not much of telephone. They will send the design, the person will come, they will give the design. And most of the work was of the badges and the banners. Most of the military is there required gold embroidered badges, sometimes the silver embroidered and the silk. The second reason for the downfall was the tremendous rise in the price of gold and silver. So the basic material for the Zardozi embroidery was out of the affording range of even the upper rich elite. What to say of the common man? Here I can, I would like to explain uh, what exactly is the gold wire. Gold wire is actually silver wire plated with gold. And if you may recall, we could keep our old dresses, whether it is sari, whether it is of zari or the achkan, you will burn and you will recover the gold out of it. But with the price of gold increasing and price of silver increasing, they had to change the base wire. So instead of silver wire, they replaced it with the copper wire. What do you need uh, in a metal? The ductility property. Ductility means that you can draw it into long wire. Say the thought if copper can be drawn into long wire, let us use copper instead of silver. The customer was happy, the artisan was happy. But what happened? When they plated it with silver and they plated it with gold, and they embroidered the achkan and the cap and the sari and customer, they bought it. And after three years when they are opening it, these are festive occasion wear and you don't wear them every day. So when they open the trunk and take it out, the dress, it was all tarnished. 
that became a major reason for the downfall of the zardozi embroidery because if i am spending a certain amount of money and i can wear the dress only once and if i want to wear it the second time say over a period of 2 years or maybe 7 months because india is tropical we get lot of rain so there is lot of moisture so tarnishing comes very easily so copper wire plated with silver and gold was the biggest misfortune for the zardozi craft the same situation was for the kalabattu the zari wire which was used for weaving for brocading so downfall was in the total zari industry Charuji I find it quite interesting how earlier it was the glitter and power of gold that made zardozi embroidery popular and was something owned by the kings and the elite class but slowly the material started totally getting altered from copper as we know we also had aluminum and then plastic and yeah in, in today's date it has become a common man's dress most people can afford it Could you tell us more in details about how the material was getting altered and how it again became really popular? So there were more researches and there were more experiments. Then came the aluminium wire. What they did in the aluminium wire was they put the aluminium sheet between the two plastic sheets and it can be then drawn into wire for the white color. it remained this original wire and for the gold color it would be gold electroplated everywhere there was an effort to reduce the cost of manufacturing of the raw material see when the aluminum sheet wire came those who could afford they were still getting their work in gold wire and there were three varieties asli kaam means silver wire with gold plated then nakli kaam nakli kaam was copper wire and then came this aluminum jhootha kaam and after jhootha kaam came the polypropylene wire which is the polyester and when polyester came you would understand that there was no metal content in it so it was plastic ka tar all the zardozi wire of the original variety could be made in plastic this polypropylene wire and what happened with the coming of polyester wire it reduced the cost of the raw material see cost of embroidery did not decrease because zardoz artisan they are not paid by the embroidery motif they are paid by the amount of material laid on to the fabric and this polyester wire it could also be into different colors like you could have a green zardozi you could have red zardozi and that was known as rangeen tar plastic tar and rangeen tar now these wires brought the glory of zardozi back firstly it was washable secondly it was wearable repeated number of times and thirdly the cost was much much less than the cost of the asli kaam another reason for the coming back of zardozi 
See, dresses and costumes in India were not so popularly done in Zardozi embroidery. People will go for a Banarsi sari in polyester wire, but uh, not for a Zardozi lehenga. I remember way back in 1983-84, before that Ritu Kumar had started experimenting in Zardozi production in her karkhanas in Calcutta. She came to Delhi in 1984 and I remember very vividly, at that time I was doing my PhD on Zardozi and she said she wanted to popularize Zardozi as a common man's fashion. And in 1984, she did her first exhibition in Lalit Kala Academy. See, earlier, as I mentioned, there were Mughal ladies and there were British uh, ladies who were trying to promote the Zardozi. But now a fashion designer from India came into the field and started making costumes in Zardozi. She did her exhibitions. And whatever she was designing, of course, her prices were high, but that was being sold. Then came other players, other fashion designers, Abu Jani, Sandeep Khosla, Manish Malhotra. What did Manish Malhotra do? Every actress was adorned in the Zardozi lehenga. What was the impact? Manish was restricting himself to the films on the screen. Uh, highlighting the Zardozi opulence in the costumes. And we have another designer, Sabdasachi Mukherjee. He took it a little further. He started actually dressing up the actresses and the known women, the popular women, whosoever was getting married would be wearing a Sabdasachi lehenga, whether it is Deepika Padukone, whether it is Aishwarya Rai, so what does it do? It's a very common psychology among the Indian women. Whatever the heroine is wearing, I must have, if not the same dress, at least a similar dress. And then what happened? Whatever Sabhisachi was designing in Zardozi, or whatever Ritu Kumar was designing, or whatever Abhujani was designing, or Sandeep Kosla was designing, there were many other designers who came up. And they also started making garments, costumes, chunari, choli, ghagra, lehenga, sari, with different range of cost prices. So this way what happened, the spread of Zardozi craft, I would say post-80s, it seeped into the middleman's wardrobe. Now this talks of the revival and the resurgence. Charuji, till now we spoke about how this craft reflected the taste and preferences, fashion requirements of the elite from various religious sects. Also, at various points in time, there was a shift in the demand of this craft. And we also spoke about how slowly the material got altered and now it has become much more affordable. But we know one thing, no matter what material is used, the procedure generally for creating these Zardozi embroidery remains the same. So could you tell us, how this embroidery is done. Procedure here is, I mentioned there is a frame called karchop. The karchop is a wooden frame which is put on a tipai. Tipai is a stool. The karchop is a rectangular frame which can be picked up 
from the tepai and uh, carried in hand from one place to another. If you are doing the small items uh, on velvet and satin, like mukots and badges and small costumes for the gods and goddesses, then karchob is fitted with a marking cloth. And on this marking cloth, the item to be embroidered is pasted. And then the embroidery is done. But when you are doing a sari or a langa, then the fabric which has to be embroidered is fixed into the karcho by stitching the sides. Length of the rectangular frame may vary according to the size of the garment you are wanting to embroider. Now, how they trace the design. The design is traced on the tracing paper and the design is pierced with small needles. Traditionally, what they were doing, they were using kerosene oil and then using the needle. And they would rub the tracing paper and design would go on to the fabric. But when they started doing all these finer materials, in velvet badges, it was fine. But when we are doing sari, sometimes that kerosene oil would leave a mark. So they started rubbing the tracing paper with zinc powder, with finger. Once the design is traced onto the fabric, according to the direction of the design, they cut the gold wire. As I have mentioned before, there are varieties of gold wire. Gora, Dapka, Gitcha, Gizahi, Sitare. So all these wires are coiled. That means they cannot go into the hole of the needle. Needle is threaded with the silk thread or this does the polyester thread. When the needle is threaded with wire, then it is brought above on the karcho. And then the particular wire which has to be laid is picked up into the needle and then needle is passed below. Generally what happens in the embroidery that you thread a particular thread into the needle and you make several variety of stitches with that thread. But here the thread used for stitching the metal is not visible at all because it comes from below and then on the top you see the gold wire and then the needle goes below again. So when you see a Zardoz working, he would always have his one hand below the karcho. That's a very special technique. No matter what kind of material they are using, whether they are using silver wire, whether they are using copper wire, whether they are using plastic wire, the technique of working for Zardozi is same. And all these Zardozi wire, as such, they give a 3D effect to the embroidery. That is why this embroidery looks more elegant, more sumptuous than other embroidery. Now in Karchobi, we give another cushioning with the sooth. Sooth is stitched onto the design part and then it is covered with the wire. Now how the covering is done? Uh, there is another needle known as Hathari, which is a notched needle. 
for karchobi the wire is not cut into the pieces but that is a long wire which is wrapped into the fatila fatila is a maybe 6 inch long wooden piece on which the wire is wrapped and then again the hathari from hathari the thread is pulled and fatila is moved from right to left and it is stretched with the hathari it is a continuous process and you can do at least 6 uh, inches or 1 meter according to how much how much wire you have on the fatila continuously you can do this hathari work what i mean to say here is that zardozi work is much slower in execution than the karchobi work the hathari work these days what they are doing in all these uh, fashion costumes they are blending both the zardozi and the karchobi work they may not be doing the cushioning but they are doing hathari work without the 3d effect so that gives it more filling work like if you see the sarees in the market you have to decide how much work if there is more zardozi work the price will go up and cost of embroidery gets reduced if there is more hathari work and less zardozi work all right charu ji we're almost at the end of this podcast is there a message that you would like to give to our listeners before we say goodbye the message is very clear and loud the zardoz have a deep instinct for survival they don't switch over to other professions but they survive through the turbulent times and they adapt to the changes necessary to keep the craft alive well that is so true and that is something that we have definitely learned uh, after today's podcast thank you charu ji it was a pleasure talking to you and thank you for being a part of the indian podcast same here thank you bye bye alisha bye well if you enjoyed this episode of the indian podcast and got to learn a lot about zardozi embroidery and its history today then definitely like and share this podcast and also subscribe to our channel the indian podcast this is alisha saying goodbye you take care